This week on CollaborCast, we are joined by my dear friend Jennifer Reimer. We are talking MFAs. She is the program coordinator for the Low Residency MFA program at Oregon State University's Cascades campus in Bend, Oregon. Let's do this. And hello again. We are joined by Jennifer Reimer. She, in addition to being the program coordinator for the low residency MFA program at Oregon State University's Cascades campus, she is also the author of the poetry collections Rainy Season Diaries from Quale Press and Keshke from Airly Press, both fantastic um, you know, I've got to call out Rainy Season Diaries. It's one of my all-time favorite pieces of literature ever. Um, definitely a, a desert island book for me. Um, and I have words tattooed on my bicep from it, and I can't say that about any other book. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. How are you? What's happening up there? Well, first of all, thank you so much for those kind words, Jason. Hi, Ben. Thanks to you both for having me on, on this podcast. Super excited to be joining you and joining you from the um, in the middle of one of our um, twice yearly low residency, 10-day uh, residencies here in Bend, Oregon. So I'm currently immersed in the world of MFA programs and surrounded by accomplished and talented and aspiring writers and really excited to talk to you guys um, about what that means, what that looks like. Thank you for joining us. Before we go any further, can you just kind of lay out what an MFA in creative writing is, just generally speaking? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. Um, master's uh, in fine arts in creative writing is a terminal degree. And by terminal degree, I mean it's a degree that you, once you get it, you can take it and go get a job. Um, it's like a PhD. They do now have PhDs in creative writing, um, but the MFA has always been considered sort of like the PhD in creative writing. So you get your master's and um, yeah, you can go use it to teach creative writing. You can use it to ask for a raise from your boss because now you have a master's degree. Um, it provides a lot of professionalization tools. Would you say that there is an average student as far as someone who has just finished their undergrad and is immediately going into it? Do you have more returning older students? Who makes up the, the group that shows up there? Well, this might be a good opportunity to talk about the difference between a full residency program and a low residency program, because there are some differences in the student makeup and the student body between the low residency and a high residency. So I myself, alongside Jason, we that's how we met, we went to a full residency MFA program. And that is you're enrolled as a full-time student and you're on campus in those days, of course, all in person. You're on campus, mostly in person for the duration of an academic year. And that's considered a full residency program. A low residency program um, usually follows a studio model. 
And typically that means that students are working independently um, outside of a campus, not physically going to a classroom, but working remotely with a, a mentor and then meeting on a campus for intensive periods of time. For us, it's 10 days twice a year, so a total of 20 days of being on campus with cohorts and with your faculty, and then supplemented by outside what they call studio work or independent study. Later, if we want, we can talk about um, OSU Cascades low residency program because it's a little bit different than what I just explained. But your typical low residency functions on what they call this sort of studio model, which is a lot of independent work and then a couple intensive periods around other writers and your teachers. And so because of that difference, because in a low residency program, you don't have to be on a physical campus taking classes for nine months out of the year, low residency programs tend to get a different kind of student body makeup. We tend to have non-traditional students um, which means students who are, you know, doing something else <laughs> um, while they're going to school, like taking care of family members or working one or more jobs, mostly full-time jobs, and then doing coursework on their own in the evenings, on weekends, that kind of thing. Um, and our low residency program, and I think this is pretty typical for other low residency programs too, we tend to have um, a significant amount of veterans come through the program who are using their VA benefits to pay for school. And again, just people who are otherwise doing other things in their life and wanna be able to leverage the opportunity to, to get the degree without having to be on a campus nine months out of the year. Now, that being said, I think both in full residencies and in low residency programs, um, there are still many students who are coming directly from an undergraduate program. And, you know, there's more to say about that, too. I think it also has to do with general trends in higher education and job placement in this country, where um, I think for many people seeking professional careers, a bachelor's degree is no longer seen as sufficient uh, for getting the right kind of job or for advancing in the job that you want. And so a lot of people are considering a master's degree as kind of the, the new bachelor's degree, what you really need if you want to have um, more job opportunities um, in, in a professional capacity. So because of that sort of trend towards more education in the United States, at least, there's more students who are coming directly from undergrad and into to a master's program. But definitely in our case, and I think for many low residency programs, you do get a mix of different kinds of writers at different points in their lives and in their careers. Have you noticed a difference between any of those kind of broad categories of students in terms of their success in the program or how invested they might be in it or I'm I'm thinking back to my own experience and remembering how I was not ready for anything immediately out of undergrad and I needed a few years to go and and really I, I wrote and I wrote my first novel before I went into that MFA program, and I had to do that to realize how little I knew and to kind of light the fire that got me there. Um, have you have you noticed a, a difference in terms of what they're getting out of it or what their experiences are if they're coming sooner or coming later in life? So I remember when we started our program, the first class that we had to take um, in our MFA school was a class on autobiography. And I remember I was 22, no, 23 at the time. And um, 
so basically I, I was writing like, you know, a high school soap opera as, as my autobiography, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, this is what happened when Tom Ward didn't like me back. Um, and there was, you know, I, I was my driver's younger. license, the end. <laughs> Well, I do remember that most of our, our cohort, you know, were people who had had more life experience. And, you know, there was a lot of teasing and, and fun poking at some of us who were on the younger edge of things kind of coming in with, on the one hand, sometimes it felt like less to write about. But I'm, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I, I think that what I see are some distinct skill sets. So folks who are coming to a master's degree after doing something else are bringing maturity. Um, they're bringing more life experience. Sometimes they're bringing a greater sense of intentionality, sort of like, I've really chosen to do this now at this particular point in my life. I've made an intentional choice to do it. I've rearranged my life so that I can, you know, or things like now my kids are all off to college and I have the time and I want to focus on this. Um, and that's a different kind of experience, different kind of knowledges than students who are coming directly out of undergrad. And students who are coming directly out of undergrad, typically if they've been um, to a humanities-oriented university or gotten a humanities-oriented degree, and they're sort of on the, you know, in their early 20s, early to mid to late 20s, they're coming with, you know, they're really versed in sort of current language of social and cultural critique. They're the ones who are most interested and sort of asking for difficult conversations around, you know, what does it mean to be a writer and what does it mean to be a part of an MFA program in an era when our country is having complex conversations around identity and representation, um, to use the language of the bureaucracy, right, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those students are, are coming ready to have those conversations. They're hungry for those conversations. They might be a little bit more skilled in some forms of critical thinking and reading and writing, which are great. Those are great skills to bring to an MFA program. Um, they're not necessary though, because we can, we teach you that <laughs> from the first day. And I see some of the, you know, we have some older students who are not as well-versed in those conversations. And it may have been a decade or many decades since they've been in a college classroom. Um, where they might have a ton of life experience, but it's been a while since, you know, they've had to talk about a piece of literature or a piece of writing around other people. So there's different skill sets and different forms of knowledges that these different demographics are bringing. And, you know, I think from what I've seen, the best kind of cohorts are the ones where you have a mix. Not It's not always comfortable, but who wants to be comfortable? I felt like we had a pretty good mix. I felt like that was a real strength of of the program. I'm just remembering there was a pretty broad range of ages and life experiences and different geographies. I think it was a good experience. I really, during those years in that MFA program, it was one of the first moments in my life as a young adult where I got to be around older adults who were not family members, who were not... Um, like professors or teachers or, you know, sort of like boss type figures, but people who presented themselves on the one hand as peers, because we were all going through the same experience together, but had maturity and life experience and were also able to sort of offer models and mentorship um, for what it looked like 
um, to be a writer at different stages in your life. And so I think what I'm trying to say is for me, it was one of the first times in my life when I got to work closely with older adults and it was a really valuable experience. Based on what you're saying, especially like the conversations that people are wanting to have and are hungry to have and the language that you've used about how everyone is sharing their experiences and their lack of experience in other places. It sounds like that under the right conditions, and perhaps the two of you experienced it, you can build some significant real relationships with people given the nature of writing, given the nature of examining thoughts and having a hyper intensive thing where you are privy to the thoughts and words of others in a way that wouldn't happen in a regular college classroom where you're not reading each other's papers, perhaps, or having uh, such intimate sharing of creativity and thoughts. Was that your experience? And do you still keep in contact? I mean, obviously, the two of you still keep in contact, but do you keep in contact with people who were part of your cohort? Do you want to answer first, Jason? Because I feel like I've been talking a lot. You're on um, this podcast to talk a lot. So don't <laughs> worry about that. I think that that is, that is the classic double-edged sword of being in, um, in any kind of creative community that's close-knit and intense for a certain period of time. And so all of those things that you mentioned are the good things. And maybe we should lead with that, right? Um, the answer is 100% yes. Um, for me, the magic of the MFA was the people that I was able to form connections with that were lasting and nurturing um, and productive. Um, and it wasn't with everyone that I that was in my cohort or everyone I was in a class with um, during that program. But for myself, and I think Jason had the same experience, is that pretty soon you sort of figure out who your peers are and who your, your people are who are the, the people who really understand how to read your work and how to engage with your work. This is not everyone and that's that's fine, right? And you also figure out whose work you feel like you're in really engaging with. Um, and that was definitely true for me. And so there was a handful of folks from our MFA program that I have maintained connections with over the years, personally and professionally. Jason is probably the strongest example of that just Soon after we graduated, we were doing um, sort of informal living room workshops together with some other people. That eventually turned into the idea to uh, run a small indie press for a handful of years. And so we did that. And through all of these things, we kept in touch. We swapped manuscripts. Jason has like very generously commented on drafts of my writing throughout the years. Um, and in fact, in Jason's, you know, other capacity as a visual artist, he actually made the piece of art that became the cover of my first book. Like he created the art itself and then we gave it to the publisher. He used it to make the cover of the book. I mean, and that's, you know, he made this piece of art that seemed like it was ripped from the depths of my soul. Um, and that came out of years of working closely with each other. Um, Recently in the program that I'm currently running, I had the opportunity to bring on board as a faculty member, another very talented memoirist, fiction writer, and screenwriter that we went to MFA school with, and his name's Josh Moore. So he's now teaching um, in this program. And those are the kind of connections and opportunities that, you know, 
when I look at that student loan bill <laughs> from, um, from my MFA, I'm like, well, I guess you can't put a price tag on friendship. <laughs> Let's crochet that on a throw pillow. <laughs> I don't know. Does that resonate with with your experience, Jason? Absolutely. And Ben, I think you were getting at there's a certain level of vulnerability that comes with maybe doing a, a grad school workshop when you're talking about your autobiography or your memoir versus if you're doing a grad level seminar on economics or you know something that's not quite as personal. And I I would say that I am you know Jennifer talked about identifying people who whose work you really resonate with whose whose feedback you're really looking forward to in those workshops everybody i'm still in touch with everybody who was a significant part of a part of that cohort for me and it's been 20 it's been 20 years since we started that program so this is it's not it's not an insignificant amount of time we it's wouldn't we wouldn't even be here right now on this podcast if it wasn't for that cohort. That is true. That is very true. And especially having this particular episode. But you talked about the double-edged sword, Jennifer, and then there was a mention of student loans. So if somebody is listening to this podcast and their big question is to MFA or not to MFA, I think... I think we owe them a discussion of the other the other side of that sword. What would you what would you say is is was the downside to to all that? Yeah, so maybe there's more than two sides here because one side that is tricky is navigating some of the interpersonal dynamics when they're not um, engaging and easy and productive. And to speak to what you guys you know just brought up, the, the sort of intensive personal nature of being in a workshop where you're sharing um, art together, something that you've produced, it's different than, yeah, being in social 101 or taking a business class, right? It's, it's intense, it's personal, you're putting, you feel as if you are putting yourself, your identity, you know, um, your soul out there for other people to examine and judge and pick apart. That's how it feels, at least. And so, you know, be, because of the intensive nature, um, and because, writers tend to be, you know, <laughs> we're a difficult bunch sometimes, right? Like any group of creatives, there can be difficult interpersonal moments, um, you know, and if workshops are not facilitated by facilitators who know what they're doing and are comfortable managing personalities and emotions in a classroom, it can be difficult. Um, I think we had fairly good experiences where we didn't have so much you know, intense drama in the classroom, just a little bit to keep it healthy. But I've definitely heard stories from other MFA programs. And of course, if you've read any um, any of the conversations or familiar with any of the conversations around, you know, what it's like to be a person of color in a creative writing workshop, I'm thinking particularly of Felicia Rose Chavez's book, The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop. Some of the stuff you hear from those voices about the experiences of being in a writing workshop as a, a minoritized person are pretty rough, pretty devastating, and things got got ugly. Um, and so that is that's one of the challenges of being, you know, in an academic slash creative environment. And we'd be happy to talk more about that or maybe ways to mitigate that. I think the other thing that you're alluding to is, you know, the, the high cost of going to graduate school. Now, there's a range of costs to, to MFA programs, right? Just like any 
um, any higher ed degree. There's ones that are less expensive um, and ones that are more expensive, but it's, you know, you're going to typically you will have to pay some money to go to MFA school. Um, there are programs that offer scholarships. Um, many of them are identity based, although we see the opportunities for that are sort of closing um, thanks to some recent legislation by the U.S. government. But I believe, you know, there's still programs where um, they offer diversity scholarships. Um, but outside of scholarships and, and fellowships, you know, it costs money to, to get an MFA. And I know that one question prospective students think about is, you know, what's the return on investment for this? Jason, you and I went to, you know, even back then, it was one of, it was a pretty expensive MFA program compared to others. So full disclosure, we went, got our MFA at a private university. Um, if you go to a public school, they're going to be cheaper. Um, but, you know, usually you're going to have to think about, you know, you're going to have to do some amount of financial planning uh, in order to do it. Because I was young and didn't really know anything about money and no one really talked to me about the consequences of my life choices. I signed the loan paperwork, um, you know, and, and came out of the degree with a significant amount of, of student loan debt. Um, I'm often asked if I feel like my MFA program was worth the amount of student loan debt. And again, that's a really tricky conversation because on the one hand, that loan is that amount of debt is, is real. And I know that I'm not alone out there. Um, in terms of people of my generation who have, you know, gotten into middle age with a significant amount of student loan debt. Um, but again, it's also hard to put a, a numerical value on, for instance, my friendship with Jason um, or, you know, would I have made it to the position I'm in now if I didn't have the MFA? I don't know that I would have. Right. Um, of course, not everyone who's getting an MFA is looking to do something like what I'm doing. For a lot of people, the return on investment is coming out of the program with a significant amount of original creative work, right? Like for them, that is worth the cost of entry to be able to like say, okay, after two years, I wrote my novel or I wrote a significant portion of my novel or I have a collection of short, of short stories or a poetry collection and I'm ready to go shop it around to publishers. Um, so there's no easy answer for that. And it's going to be different for every prospective student. And it's going to be different based on, you know, where you are in your life, what your goals are for the program, um, which program you're looking at, um, and sort of what your, your core values are. Does that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I, and I think there is real consideration that needs to be given to the idea that how do you put a price tag on all of the paths that you end up walking because of any one experience and the doors that it opens and the opportunities that it provides? You can't. And ultimately, you just have to decide at the end of your days, was it worth it? And that's not a question that maybe can be answered today. For me, you know, going into the MFA, I didn't know that I was going to come out of it two years later with significant, you know, meaningful interpersonal relationships. But what I was looking for and the reason I wanted to do it um, was because I wanted that dedicated, protected time to be able to write. And I wanted to do it around a community of other writers. And so for me, even being as naive a little bit as I was about, you know, the, the price tag on it, that was the goal. That was what I wanted. Um, I wanted to take a pause. 
I wanted to have a space where the noise of everything else would be dampened so that I could really focus in on writing in a way that I hadn't hadn't ever before in a um, structured, mentored, supportive, programmatic space. And that was, you know, I, at the end of the day, okay, so I didn't really do much with my MFA thesis. It's a collection of kind of crummy short stories that, you know, just sit over there on the bottom of a shelf. But so for me, it wasn't so much the end product, right? Um, but it was that process. I mean, I talk a lot about product versus process with my own students, you know, and trying to think about focusing on the process over the product. Um, and for me, it was that process that was that was invaluable. And that's a really valuable lesson for writers of not MFA or non MFA, just that I we come across people who have written their first novel, and then they realize it can't be published. And then they say that was a waste of time that I did that. And I have to just reiterate over and over. It's not you went through the process, you learned all of these things are valuable and will be applicable to your next project and the project after that and after that. And it is absolutely crucial to think about process more than whatever one individual project ends up being. It was for me, certainly. Now, you know, our, our friend, our colleague, Josh Moore, Jason, you know, he was always very intentional about I'm going to come out of this program with a novel draft. And he did. But um, I've heard him, you know, since then talk about how, well, you know, I thought that I was going to use the MFA program to write this novel draft. And I did. But then I ended up, you know, sort of tearing the whole thing down later and completely changing it in post MFA program revisions. So I think even, you know, even you can be as an intentional as you want, like coming in with a specific product centered goal for an MFA and you don't know what's going to happen. It's like what, you know, what you're saying at some point, you, you don't really know. You just have to like give in and give over to the process. That was what happened to me too. I had written an entire novel draft before going into the program and then workshopped it throughout. And then, you know, now it's sitting in a file somewhere that was, it was, you know, that was not, it, it, it had undergone so many changes and contortions as I took it through the program and tried to capture everything that I was learning and apply it to that work. And it was just not, it was a good learning experience, but it was yeah, not, not, not a final product that was going to go anywhere. We've, um, you mentioned the process and setting aside the, the kind of that protected time. And we've talked a lot about cohort, but I think that the mentorship and just the instructional aspect is something that we, we shouldn't overlook. And in fact, I chose USF because because for that factor, I was so impressed with with the program and the and the instructors that I had contact with before making the decision. And in fact, I had I had applied to a few different universities around the Bay. I knew I had to stay in the Bay Area. Um, I knew I wanted like a small private school, so I applied to a few others, and I. USF was the only one that did not offer me a scholarship, a fairly significant scholarship, but I was so impressed with the program and the instructors that I had met and had contact with that I, that I chose to go there. And, um, um, you know, that was, that was a big part of it. Um, I am not in much touch with, with 
any of them these days. Occasionally I'll see someone pop up on Facebook or something, but other than that, um, not a lot of ongoing contact, but, but still the, the time that I spent there learning from those particular people was, was also invaluable. And, um, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that, that can really set one program apart from another. It's just who they have teaching. And I, I read, you know, I read several books by instructors in the program before deciding to go. So I kind of knew who people were as writers and what they were doing. It was like, oh, I want to learn from this guy. I want to learn from that guy. So I yeah, was able to do that. And that's, you know, but you're, you're getting at some really good advice for current or prospective MFA students, which is look at the faculty. Um, when you're looking at the programs, you might be looking at location, you might be looking at cost, you might be looking at modality, full res versus low res, you know, online versus in-person versus hybrid. But you want to check out and scope out the faculty. You want to, you know, identify people who you think um, are going to be good mentors for you. And I completely agree with you, Jason, that our our program was was small and, you know, we didn't have teachers who, you know, were necessarily winning national book awards, but we had teachers who were accomplished writers and they were very dedicated to, to mentoring us, right? And we developed close and impactful relationships with those people. And I know that that's not the case in all programs. I, I have a very good friend of mine who went to an MFA program um, I won't name it, but it's in the New York metro area, and there are some really famous writers who were at that MFA program. Um, and, you know, they they were not great teachers, right, and possibly not great human beings. Um, and then you're paying a lot of money, at, you know, and uh, to, like, sit in someone's office while they talk to their agent and ignore you. Uh, that's not ideal, Right. Um, so look at your faculty, right? Find people that you think could could be your mentor and also read their work. So just the other day was Sunday, we had our faculty reading for our low residency MFA program. And um, I was actually really astonished that our 11 person brand new cohort had actually not read anything by the faculty. And their courses, their coursework actually started um, at the end of September and they've you know, were admitted over the summer, but none of them had had read anything by the current faculty. And um, you're missing out on an opportunity to get to know the people that you're going to be working with. Yeah, check out their books, read them, or at least at least skim them. Yeah, and I think especially given the fact that you're probably going to be paying a not insignificant amount of money to go and learn from these people, like know, know what you're getting into. Yeah, the cost of a book seems kind of trivial in light of everything else. I mean, or, you know, use that library pass. Um, here in Bend, we have a fabulous public library. Um, you know, get that library card. Go check out the books. If they're not there, have the library order them. But, you know, it's about being being aware of the conversation you're getting into, right? And to also knowing that there's a whole conversation that's happening. It's been happening before you got there. And it's going to keep happening after you leave. But for that moment, whether it's two years or a semester, when you're in that conversation, you want to know what the contours of that conversation 
are going to be. And you can help prepare yourself for that by checking out the work of the people who are going to be teaching you and mentoring you. All right. Uh, do we have anything else that you would like to say, Jennifer? I've, about you, about the MFA program? Do you want to direct people to websites? I would offer this observation or um, kind of like advice. I think it's really important if you're looking for an MFA program to also, you know, we've talked about all these things. We've talked about cost and location. We've talked about faculty mentorship. Um, you know, if you're somebody that is invested in conversations around um, equity, inclusion, social justice, or if you are excited about being, about the idea of being in a workshop with people who are from different backgrounds than yourself, take a look, make sure you're looking for programs that are paying attention to those conversations um, and that are demonstrating that commitment through the kinds of faculty that are on staff, the kinds of distinguished visiting writers they might be bringing in, or who are they, who are they hosting for reading series, but also what kind of classes they're offering. Are they paying attention to questions of difference, power, and privilege in their curriculum? Are you going to come out of your MFA like having read more than just the sort of traditional classic canon? You want a program that's going to do that and also a lot more and I think that, you know, just to make a not very elegant transition or plug for the OSU Cascades Low Residency Program, we've worked really hard to make um, difference, equity, and inclusion, like really integrated throughout the program, not only in terms of um, the profiles of our faculty and students, but also in the kinds of courses that we are offering. And we offer, you know, we have required courses called reading difference, power, and privilege, writing difference, power, and privilege. We offer a bilingual English-Spanish creative writing workshop. Um, in addition to classes that are, you know, craft classes that are, will train you comprehensively in different kinds of genres, different styles, different voices, different traditions. Um, I think the future of successful MFA programs are going to be ones that are engaging these aspects of current creative and social conversations. And if those are things that are important to you, uh, make sure you're looking for, for programs who are really doing that. And it's a very new, um, not, and not all MFA programs are embracing these values or these conversations. Um, and if that is something you care about, check it out. Make sure that you're finding the program that is really invested in staying current in conversations in the field. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so appreciative of it. Thanks, you guys, for having me. It's really fun to talk about all things related to, to the MFA. It's especially with Jason. Cool. Especially with Jason. Jason's a pretty cool guy. Lots of things to say on that. We Can we get you back sometime with your poet hat on? Yes, please. The only all thing right. I like talking more about school is not talking about school. I'm talking <laughs> about poems instead. So please, I'd love to come back. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Very much appreciated. For story. For community. Collaborate. Collaborate.